Welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about truth-telling on politics and health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Our air here in the U.S. has become much cleaner in these last 50 years, especially since we passed the nation's first ever federal legislation to control air pollution in 1963 with the Clean Air Act. However, you might be surprised to learn about what is still allowed to be emitted under federal law and that there are plenty of places across America that are not in compliance with the federal laws that we have on the books. Places like Northwest Montana or Southwest Illinois or Central Florida. Those areas and many others are home to counties that are out of compliance with EPA air standards. In fact, the place I'm recording this podcast from right now, Denver, Colorado, falls into that same non-compliance category. Air pollution still causes about 100,000 premature deaths annually in America and costs us all about $886 billion per year. The air emissions from our fossil fuel economy not only accelerate climate change, but also poses a health risk right now in communities across the U.S., I got zeroed in on this topic in part because of a stunning story right here in Metro Denver where an oil refining facility operated by a company called Suncor has been spewing substances including hydrogen cyanide over an adjacent neighborhood. This was just one of over 100 violations that state regulators have found to have occurred at this facility since 2018 which also included things like hours-long leaks and visible emission events and unregulated flares of hydrogen sulfide. You might not know offhand the exact effect of these events and substances, but your intuition is correct. It's all very, very bad. Chase Woodruff, a journalist for Westward and Alt Weekly here in Colorado, has been reporting on this story, and we're going to hear from him shortly. I'm also going to chat with Dr. Corey Carroll, a board-certified family physician and chairman of Physicians for Social Responsibility Colorado. He's going to help us understand how these emissions affect our health and share some perspective on treating patients in a community that has a steep rise in nearby oil and gas extraction. And beyond just telling you about all this on a podcast, I should also let you know that the organization I lead, Healthier Colorado, has launched a new group of health professionals called Healthy Air and Water Colorado, who are pushing related state legislation right now to protect communities and increase fines on violators like the ones I just mentioned. I'll deliver some more info on that at the very end in case you're interested. But first, here is my interview with journalist Chase Woodruff. So I think it was the title of this piece that um, got my attention right away. I'll read what it is. Suncor, operational upsets in the language of oil and gas fuck-ups. I think that was the first time I've seen the word fuck-ups in uh, a title. And in case you're wondering, um, you're tracking AP style. I don't know if you guys use AP style, but that's all one word, not two words. <laughs> gotcha. Well, uh, yeah, it's the, you know, it's the joys of being an alt-weekly. We can write those headlines when... Uh, the Denver Post or someone else, a lot of other places can't. So. And so how did you first stumble upon this story? So um, a few months ago in, in early December, there was, we started getting reports of a um, school lockdown in um, Commerce City, which is a, an area just north of Denver. Um, it is near, it, you know, it's a very heavy, heavily industrial area. 
There are lots of sources of industrial pollution, including the Suncor refinery, which is um, it's Colorado's only refinery. It's a very large and complicated industrial facility that has a long history that I'm sure we'll get into. But um, in in one morning in December, there was a malfunction at the refinery, and there they, as as that headline said, they called it an operational upset. And what that meant was... Uh, so it's like a wardrobe malfunction for an industrial plant. Yes. Um, and they, 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 you know, the explanation eventually was that they sort of overloaded this, what's called the fluid catalytic cracking unit. It's, you know, this very complicated machinery that's used in the oil refining process. And it overloaded. It released uh, sort of a yellowish plume, I guess you would call it, of uh, material into the air above, you know, this, this neighborhood. And there are two schools nearby. Um, they started, they placed students on lockdown because staff were noticing that <laughs> there was ash falling from the sky, this sort of yellowish, strange yellowish material that was kind of coating um, cars and other surfaces outside. And, you know, obviously <laughs> that's a very frightening situation. And uh, we, we got reports of, of the lockdown and there was, you know, obviously a, a response from the fire department and, you know, that's, that was what, that was the initial incident that sort of, or at least the most recent one that has, has caused a lot of attention for this refiner. So in real time, did the Suncor plant uh, reach out to the community to let them know what was going on and what did they say? You know that that has been an issue, and there was there was a lack of communication. I think they reached out to um, they have a system where they can notify um, Adams County, which is the county that this that Commerce City is in. But um, I don't believe there was any uh, direct communication to school to the schools, and particularly not to the parents. And we um, spoke that afternoon to parents who still weren't sure what was going on. And obviously that's, you know, a, a huge concern because they were getting calls and texts about some kind of malfunction and some kind of plume that was drifting over the city. And, um, you know, you can imagine how scary that is. And so in the aftermath, was there more communication with the community about what happened? Uh, in fits and starts, there was a, you know, there was an initial initial statement that was did not say much. And, you know, it, in, in the way that corporate communications, I think, often do, there is a, um, you know, a little more information later on in the day and sort of a, the, the first, the first beginnings of an apology and sort of accountability for the statement. Um, they explained um, that this was, it, the material principally that was emitted was uh, a substance called catalyst. It's used in the refining process. It is not a, you know, extremely toxic material, but there are health hazards associated with it. If you get it on your skin, it can cause irritation. If you breathe it in, it can cause, you know, respiratory problems, uh, acute respiratory problems. And, you know, the, there was an evolving set of language that they used. And initially they said, this is classified as non-hazardous. And that was, I think maybe, careful language that was technically true in a sense. Um, subsequent documentation that they released indicated otherwise that um, under um, things, 
I, I forget exactly what the acronym stands for, but there's a you know National Fire Protection Hazard Identification System or something like that. And um, that's the red, yellow, and blue things you see sometimes on the like chemical yeah. you know, applications and stuff. And it, it was con- considered a, a, a slightly hazardous material. And did they offer the community any sort of compensation or remedy? Yes, they uh, offered free car washes. <laughs> okay. Uh, because that's you know, nice. That, that was that was one of the main uh, things that people saw saw associated with this was they would come out they came outside to, from work and saw their sort of uh, cars coated in a film, and uh, that that was what uh, Suncor identified as as the thing that they. No lung washes, just just uh, just no, car washes. No. Okay, and so who is Suncor? Suncor is a it's a Canadian company. Um, it was initially founded, I think, in um, in nineteen nineteen, I believe, as a Canadian subsidiary of what was then the Sun Oil Company. It's now known as Sunoco. Um, they've actually gotten out of the oil extraction and refining business, but. Suncor became an independent company, uh, Canadian-based company in, I think, 1995. They are, you know, one of the largest, I think they are the largest energy company in Canada and one of the largest corporations in Canada, period. Um, and, you know, what, what's interesting about the Suncor facility is it's one of their only U.S.-based holdings. Um, they have some other refineries in Canada and they're heavily involved in oil and gas extraction in the Canadian tar sands, but um, are not, don't have much of a presence in the United States other than this um, refining facility in Colorado where they're you know, in, in the mountain West region where they're able to pipe in some of their, their oil and refine it here. You mentioned that this is Colorado's only um, oil refinery and um, for those of you who don't know where Commerce City is, it's basically attached to Denver. When you land at the airport, you're driving into Denver, you can see it. You see these gigantic stacks, uh, smokestacks, usually with smoke coming out of them. Um, and so it's kind of a prominent um, feature on the landscape, I'd say, unfortunately, um, around Denver. It kind of sticks out. Um, the neighborhood around it, What? tell me about the neighborhood that surrounds Suncor. What is it? Who lives there? What does it look like? Yeah, so uh, as you said, it's... The, 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 it's a very large refinery and fi- refining facility that is situated just on the border between um, the North Denver city limits and Commerce City, which is located just to, to the north. And that, that area the, the, on the Denver side are two um, historically low-income, heavily Latino neighborhoods. One of them, it's Globeville and Elyria Swansea. They are you know, since the very early days of Denver in the late 19th century, these areas were where industry was concentrated. And the the first industries in there were smelting plants um, that, you know, smelted metals that were uh, mined from from various mining towns in the mountains in the very early days of Colorado. They were unbelievably toxic. And you can you know, 19th century lead smelting was not a very clean business. And there are, um, there have been a lot of super fun sites. Some of them are now inactive, but some of them are still active in around this area, you know, sort of soil contaminated with lead pollution, arsenic pollution. It's an area that has long been 
you know, fit, dealt with the effects of environmental pollution. And the, many of the people who live there have been, as is so often the case, low income, um, Latino, and, and uh, that's, and especially Commerce City these days, um, the neighborhoods, even within Commerce City, the neighborhoods that are closest to the Suncor refinery are those lower income Latino neighborhoods while the city has sort of expanded north and, you know, built these new suburban developments that are more affluent, more white. And, you know, so you can even see the divide within this sort of small municipality. And so what does Suncor's record look like in this community? Is this uh, a rare incident for them or if, if instance happened before? Uh, there have been a number of operational upsets, to use their <laughs> term. They there was um, in 2016, uh, in 2016 and 2017 actually a few months apart. There were very similar incidents where the refinery lost power, and you can imagine that could cause some problems for a very you know large uh, industrial facility. And there were uh, there were emissions of, of toxic gases in those incidents, they were sort of, you know, very similar to this most recent incident, um, different cause. And they have, in 2011, there was some contamination discovered. Suncor actually is situated uh, almost at the confluence of uh, Sand Creek, which is a small tributary, and the South Platte River, which runs north through Denver. And there was water contamination discovered right outside the facility. Um, benzene, which is a cancer-causing chemical, was you know being dumped at high concentrations into Sand Creek and eventually into the South Platte. And that was that took you know months of cleanup work with you know the EPA and Suncor. There was lots of lots of cleanup to do on that. And, you know, periodically they have smaller incidents. There was a gas line break at the facility uh, early last year. And so it is pretty frequent that you have these sorts of incidents. And have there been uh, significant regulatory penalties for this or what's happened as a result? So most recently and partly in response to the incident in December where the schools were locked down, but really as an accumulation of things, they've had some failed ex- inspections that the state regulators have discovered. Um, and state regulators in December, just after the, the, um, the, it, the catalyst release incident, sent a 50-page, what's called a compliance advisory. It's basically a letter listing all kinds of violations and demanding that the polluter in question be, you know, respond to them and be held accountable. And typically what has happened is that there are not direct penalties assessed. That's not the way that Colorado state regulators, or I think a lot of regulatory bodies go about these things. They sort of send these compliance advisories and they say, okay, we're getting serious. We're going to crack down on you. And then they go through sort of a, a negotiated settlement process where a polluter may commit to certain emissions controls or upgrades to their equipment that may be faulty or things like that. And that is the way that Colorado has handled Suncor and other polluters in the past. There are certainly folks who 
feel like it's time to maybe not not just have a negotiated settlement and maybe get more aggressive and actually really level maximum penalties and things like that. You mentioned benzene earlier. I know that's one of the um, substances that they knowingly um, admit um, that's allowed. Also cyanide, I was surprised to learn, is knowingly uh, emitted and also allowed. Um, how, how is that? How can that happen? Yeah, so there are gaps in federal. Essentially, there are, there are, there's a loophole that exists in, in for certain gases, including um, hydrogen cyanide, which is a you know it's cyanide gas. It's a chemical weapon. It has been used in warfare before, and, and it is obviously unbelievably toxic in the right concentrations. And but because it is not covered by a specific federal regulation. Essentially, what a, a polluter like Suncor is able to do at the state level is to um, tell Colorado, here's how much of this gas that we expect to emit a year, and essentially set its own emissions limit. And Suncor has done this for hydrogen cyanide gas. It is They have set their own limit of 25,000 pounds per year. They say 25,000 pounds, 25,000 pounds. And that's per year. That's and that's sort of in a, in an ambient air quality sense, they say that that is well below levels that would could pose a health risk to the surrounding community. And that's what they say, but this is a loophole exi- that exists in federal law. And um, there are, as you can imagine, folks who want to close this and actually set a health limit defined in federal regulations rather than just relying on a company saying, here's how much we're going to admit. admit. And I know you spoke with uh, people in these communities. What do they say? What do they want to see happen? And, and what is their power to make something happen? Yeah, I mean, you, you can imagine how um, scary it is to, to be living with a sort of presence like this looming over the community. Um, particularly after the incidents that that we've seen over the last few years. And I think folks want to see better communication. They have, there is um, actually a bill working its way through the state legislature here right now that is partly or largely in response to some of these incidents that we've had. Um, It would require, among other things, sort of continuous um, emissions monitoring at facilities like this. It would require better notification systems for schools and parents of schools. And and that is certainly something that people would like to see. There is also a campaign uh, ongoing to close the Suncor plant. There are people who believe that a large industrial pollution source like this doesn't have any business being within very close proximity of lots of people's homes and schools and things like that. I imagine that would be a heavy lift for all the obvious reasons, right? But also, given that it's uh, the only refinery in Colorado and the price of gas is often affected by your proximity to a refinery, I'm sure it would be uh, politically difficult to do that. Yes, I don't. Uh, I don't know of any, um, you know, elected lawmakers or even elected local officials that have, have been willing to go that far. It's a sort of a, a grassroots campaign, and a lot of it is coming from. Uh, folks involved in um, 
particularly climate activism. And yeah. this is obviously, you know, this entire conversation is taking place in the context of, you know, the, this is the fossil fuel economy. This is how we've structured our society that, you know, we are powered by fossil fuels. And, you know, if you can take, take Suncor as an example, I mean, Suncor, a barrel of oil that Suncor extracts out of the ground in the Canadian tar sands, which is some of the most ecologically destructive oil and gas extraction that goes on anywhere. Um, they extract that oil, they ship it down here, they refine it at this facility, and it goes out into uh, gas tanks of folks in and around Denver, and people benefit from that, and that's how a lot of us get around. And But there are people who pay the costs of that and face the risks of that much more heavily than most of us do. And a lot of those folks are in or around these neighborhoods um, around the Suncor facility. And you know, the other part of this conversation is just to the north of there, there is oil and gas fields and oil and gas extraction that is increasingly encroaching on really, you know, North Metro Denver and Commerce City has, I think a dozen oil and gas projects on its north side that have been proposed. And that is, this is the fossil fuel economy and particularly for climate activists who are increasingly aggressive and bold about wanting to say, we need to leave fossil fuels behind and we need to electrify every vehicle in the country and not rely on gasoline and oil and gas and you know, those conversations are happening more and more and the science obviously of climate says that they need to happen within the next couple decades. And how about um, ground level economic tensions? And what I mean is I already mentioned the, the price of gas, uh, for example, but also I imagine that um, there are likely people in this community who are affected by the pollution who also might work at the plant and obviously value having a job. Uh, ditto goes perhaps uh, to the um, oil and gas developments that you referenced um, on the outskirts of town. Did you hear anything from people about that and concern about and, or conflict within them or families about, you know, the fact that they really don't want to breathe cyanide and benzene, but they also, you know, want to make sure that people have jobs? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there is specific to Suncor, certainly. I mean, it, the, the facility supports about 500 jobs. Um, I, I don't know specifically, but I would imagine that some of those jobs are in, in and around these, these communities around the plant. But, um, and I know that, that folks who have canvassed in support of the you know, outright closure of the facility have encountered some folks who have said exactly that, that the, this, is, this is an economic concern and a job concern. And certainly some members of, you know, for, for instance, the Commerce City Council, they very much value um, Suncor being a part of their community and providing uh, a tax base and a, a, a center of job creation. And that's, that's absolutely true of Colorado's economy. We are, we are an oil and gas producing state. It has, that has become increasingly true over the last decade. Oil and gas oil production in Colorado has increased fivefold just in the last ten years, um, which is a staggering increase if you think about where we are as as a as a 
country coming to into an awareness of climate science in a world that needs to deal with that reality. But that that is a powerful argument for a lot of folks. There are as many as 80, 90,000 people employed more or less directly by the oil and gas industry and in, in Colorado. And that that's that's a concern. Those folks value the industry. And I've talked to a lot of them through my reporting on other oil and gas issues, and they're not ready to say that this industry that my family you know, relies on for uh, what are often good paying jobs, you know, they're not really understandably not willing to, to sort of accept the fact that that needs to go away, even if that's exactly what the climate science says. Chase, uh, thanks for being with us today, and thanks for your reporting and bold headlines. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. So our air quality isn't just impacted by a scattered handful of bad apples like the one you just heard about. It's also impacted by the cumulative effect of several contributors. Ozone pollution is caused when emissions from sources like cars or power plants or oil and gas operations react chemically in the presence of sunlight. Here in Metro Denver, we have a particular problem with ozone pollution as we haven't been in compliance with federal air standards on ozone for more than a decade. Last year, Denver was reclassified from a moderate violator to a serious violator on ozone standards. So ozone is where we're going to pick up my conversation with Dr. Corey Carroll. Here we go. So when when people hear ozone, um, the average person might think, oh yeah, wasn't that something we took care of in the 80s? And... um, What's the trouble with uh, ozone um, if it is at a higher level in the air? What what effect does it have in my health? Why should I care? Well, the initial concern was the um, interaction of that uh, particle, which is uh, an O3. So it's a very unstable molecule. O2 is oxygen. Um, and the uh, initial phenomenon was when it was attacking um, parts of our atmosphere and creating some damage. Um, and that was not down where we live and breathe. Um, so the same dilemma of the of the, the reactive particle, if we are breathing it, it causes damage. Now, um, I think I think it's uh, maybe worthwhile to to look again from a medical perspective. Um, I really want to point out that. Um, we have, I think, very distinct things that I worry about as a physician. So as a family doc, if a patient comes in and they can't breathe, that's a medical emergency. They may be having an asthma attack. Uh, I put them in the hospital. Um, they may need to be on a ventilator. I mean, that is a big, a big, serious, acute event. Pneumonia is another acute event. But then there are these, uh, I would argue, more concerning, not that an acute pneumonia or acute asthma attack is not concerning, but I think we forget the um, low-grade inflammatory changes that are, co- that are that cause chronic disease. 
So when you look at lung tissue, you certainly can say, oh, look at that person who can't breathe and they're, they're wheezing and they're reaching for their inhaler. But the question also would be, well, what about the person that may not have acute asthma or uh, have very high sensitivities, but the average person, maybe the kid running outside uh, for the track team and they're breathing in, uh, you know, microscopic quantities of this chemical, um, but that chemical is doing damage and that damage is accumulative. And, and you know, certainly we've, we've lived on a planet. I mean, radon is a good example. That's kind of a, an isotope that, that is breaking down naturally. So we've always had exposures, if you will. But as we have urbanized, put people on top of people, built walls, well, now we could take a, 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 a radioactive gas that would be released into the atmosphere, but it would not cause no damage because there would be no concentration of it. And we concentrate it in our homes. The ozone in the front range, because of the unique uh, uh, inversion effect, the mountains that occur, um, we have a problem where this, this concentration is kind of kept down where we live. And that's my concern is as we... Because, oh, we don't have to worry about this level. It's not causing acute problems. But the unknown, and I can't say definitively, I mean, there are studies and models that predict, but I definitely would, would worry as a patient of mine. The classic example is smoking. I don't like people to smoke, but they don't typically die on the first cigarette or the 10th cigarette or the 100th cigarette or the 1,000th cigarette. But eventually, that continuous exposure, that irritant to the lungs, sometimes over you know four decades, five decades, leads to can lead to obviously the cancer, but it leads to a uh, what we call emphysema or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and it's a slow accumulation. So I tell my patients, first of all, never stop, never start smoking. That's a terrible idea. But if you are a smoker, stop, uh, because there's a good likelihood if you get that irritant out of your lungs, your lungs may heal and you may be fine. However, uh, I have patients that get mad at me when, when they say to me, Doc, you told me to quit you know, last year and I quit, and now you're telling me I got end-stage lung disease. And I go, well, the trouble was the 40 years that you smoked caused enough damage to where I can't help that. So I always look at, at taking care of people of trying to figure out what are the perturbants, what are the irritants, what are the inflammatory systems, whether it's tobacco, whether it's alcohol, obviously lack of exercise. I tell my patients to eat plants mainly because it, it's good for them. But if you basically put into your body healthy food, healthy air, clean water, clean air, you have the best likelihood of not ending up with chronic disease and, and problems, which then can be very detrimental to one's life. So ozone, um, even though it doesn't on day one uh, cause an acute event for uh, a patient, uh, over time it can uh, be a detriment to health by exacerbating existing ailments or even causing them. Would that be accurate to say? Absolutely. And, and again, there are people that are um, uh, sensitive that are uh, more likely to have, um, again, reactions, problems. 
Um, but I think all of us would say, you know, it, it, it's, it's, I, I grew up again in the Denver area in the, in the seventies and, you know, there was the brown cloud and, you know, it, it's none of us say, oh, let's go out and, you know, ride my bike in this pretty polluted air. It's, it would be nice if the wind was blowing and that, and again, I get worried because that pollution has to go somewhere, but because of the unique um, situation here with the mountains and the front range and the population, we do have a tendency of, of trapping those particulates, those um, organic molecules that, that over time definitely lead to uh, damage and problems. And now, you know, the biggest question is going to be, well, what are the main contributors? What's the solution? How can we um, look at this? Um, again, I, I, I tend to be a doctor, so I'm really worried about health and patients, but I recognize the economic issues, the, the industrial issues, but that doesn't change the facts of our, um, our bodies and our health. We can't expose ourselves to these higher levels of ozone, uh, particulate matters that are small enough to get into the deep air spaces, the chemicals that we can uh, breathe and get absorbed into our lungs, into our uh, bodies and create um, disruption of the endocrine system. These are all things that were not part of our world 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago, um, and now they are. So the question really is, uh, how bad is it and what should we do about it? I'm going to name um, a few different substances that are being emitted from industrial facilities uh, across the country, and you don't have to comment on each one, but I just want to get your your general take or if you want to talk about at least one of them and what the effect on health is. Here are four substances that are being emitted, hydrogen chloride, hydrogen cyanide, benzene, and hydrogen sulfide. Those don't sound like things that are good for you. But I'm not a doctor. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, these um, the benzene and the, the hydrogen sulfide or cyanide are these are um, um, deadly agents. The the benzene is a carcinogen, and again, they're just they're re, they're chemicals that really don't work well in the human or any um, living creature. Um, and so it's it, it is this. Um, dilemma that we have technology that it creates, um, you know, we can burn um, certain fuels to create energy, heat. Um, when we are obtaining those uh, energies, uh, whether it be uh, natural gas, and I don't like that term. I actually, um, you know, it, it's it's basically methane, it's, which is a very dangerous compound. The biggest thing with that is probably the uh, the global warming and the trapping of heat, but from the from the human body, these are chemicals that um, have been locked in the ground. Typically, fossil fuels for millions of years. We have devised these wonderful industrial systems, uh, and I mean that seriously. It's it's quite amazing what we have done with technology. But here's the downside: when you bring these products to the surface, you're bringing up stuff like the benzene and the toluene and the hydrogen sulfide. These are uh, products that uh, are really dangerous. And as we, as we are extracting these other products out of the ground, these, these maybe the methane is a good example of something we want, i.e. the gas, 
but it's hard to capture all of this. So some of it leaks into the atmosphere. Some of it, you know, when, when you look at this, this thing called natural gas, we all think, oh, that's a great thing. It's, it's what I have in my stove. It's what I have in my water heater. And um, it's what I have in my main heater. Uh, but the argument of methane, which is what natural gas is, leaking at the site where it's coming from, we're now obtaining that gas through fracking, which is a whole nother way of, of um, pulling that out of the ground. And it has its uh, other volatile organic compounds that come up with it. So there's leaks there. You have to transport it. You have to, and then even burning it um, can lead to problems. So um, those four chemicals that you mentioned are um, certainly detrimental to health and problematic. Uh, and I think I'm not going to say, okay, we have to shut everything down, but we have to ask the question, if these are known carcinogens and, and hazardous to health, how can we minimize exposure? And to me, the uh, oil and gas industry has downplayed the danger of their industry. It would be like, uh, I'm not a surgeon, but it would, it would be like me as a, uh, say, an orthopedist uh, telling a patient, hey, we're going to you know, cut you open and put a new hip in you. Don't worry that nothing could go wrong. Uh, if you've ever seen an informed consent from medicine on that form, it's the statement, you may die from this um, procedure that's elective. Uh, but that's the truth. It's, it's not a high likelihood, but that's the truth. And my fear is as these chemicals are being introduced into our world, some places at higher concentration, again, the front range, we see the ozone. We need to be aware of that. We can't let an industry uh, hoodwink us into believing that they're, uh, um, uh, they're going to, that they say everything is safe. Um, there are certainly, I think, folks in the industry that believe that. But the truth of the matter is these are not safe. Um, they need to be looked at from a perspective of how can we live with this? More importantly, and I say this, you know, from a, from a, you know, it's kind of like, well, gee, I want you to eat food. Well, why don't you eat a bunch of chocolates, potato chip and, and uh, Coke and, and, you know, ice cream. Well, that, theoretically could be considered food, but it's not good food. But hey, here's another set of, of items that actually is food, i.e. Uh, potatoes, onions, rice, apples, carrots. These are classified as food, but that is a very, very good thing to be putting in your body. These other processed dangerous chemicals and again, the, the highly processed foods, not so much. So I don't have any trouble as a physician telling my patients, please don't eat these highly processed foods that, that have lots of inflammatory properties. Stick to whole food plants, you know, the green leafy vegetables. That's going to help you being healthy. I have very little capacity when it's regards to the air you breathe. And, and a big concern is where do you live? What are you living next to? And part of my major fear with the fracking, um, there's an excellent researcher at uh, Colorado School of Public Health, Lisa McKenzie, who, who boiled it down. It, it, it's a zoning issue. Uh, these fracking rigs are going in 
right next to housing projects and schools. And people say, oh, the setback of a thousand feet. Or, but this really should not be done where people live. And the trouble is the resource that the oil and gas want is underneath the neighborhoods. Um, so there's the dilemma. And uh, there's where we get the the problems and the fights that's are that are going to uh, be or that are uh, ongoing in the well who has the right to do what they do and and I'm not going to say I have the answer for that but what I are what I am saying is when you put fracking rigs when you put plants that are um, changing these chemicals into other chemicals and they're releasing these toxins. The communities and the people that are living next to them uh, definitely have to be worried about the the exposure. And again, as I said earlier, it's the chronic exposure that I worry about the most. You run a family medical practice. Uh, How often do you see patients come in with ailments that could be connected to air quality? And what would you say their level of awareness is when it comes to air quality and uh, its impact on their health? Ten years ago, when an asthmatic came in, I would never have said, "Yeah, I wonder if that is related to the particulate matter that's being created by X, Y, and Z." I think, you know, certainly we have um, our transportation industry, and we have other things, but this is not something that's taught in medical school as a um, major etiologic thought process of saying, "Okay, I've got to look at uh, my." Uh, environment and, and what's in the air. I mean, we, we really weren't taught that in medical school. We still aren't, uh, but we should be. Um, so that's the first question. It, it is affecting all of us, some more than others. My acute awareness of it because of my knowledge of um, certainly the oil and gas and the number of active wells in Weld County, not too far from where I live, where my patients are. Um, I, I, I'm certainly thinking of that when patients come in. From my patient's perspective, uh, probably very few of them. I mean, this is not something that uh, any uh, agency has put out there as a um, as an issue or a concern. So most of my patients are fairly clueless, although we're getting a little bit more, I think, um, public awareness of the of the concerns. Um, but if if you know, the hard part is what percentage of their illness disease is related to this. And, and I'll give you an example. I'm now uh, questioning all of my asthmatic patients and just saying, hey, uh, when you leave to go on vacation, whether you're going to another state or maybe traveling overseas, so how's your asthma? And I don't, you know, my practice has gotten smaller as I've gotten older. Uh, but it's fascinating, and I definitely have patients, and I and I can send them out which, which, with a device called a, um, a peak flow meter, which is actually able to um, measure a forced expiratory flow. It's a, a quick burst of air. And so I've got a quantitative evaluation, and I have one gentleman who says, yeah, uh, I use my inhaler hardly at all when I'm not here in, in Fort Collins, and my peak flow increases by 15 to 20%, meaning that they can breathe better. And I am fairly convinced that even though he's not in acute status asthmaticus, which is where you're admitted to the hospital, breathing the air here is creating 
um, a, a low-grade inflammatory response, which is affecting him. And he's managing it as, as all of us in medicine are taught. Uh, here, make sure you, you know, take your inhaler. We can, t we can actually give them the peak flow and say, when you get to a certain level, all right, take this medicine or take some more of your inhaler. And then when you get to here, you might want to start on a, staler, uh, a steroid. But I'm, you know, we have not looked at this uh, in the medical profession as a, uh, as a big problem or an issue. So I, you know, to summarize, I'm aware of it. But I doubt my colleagues um, are or even bring it up in the conversation. Hey, thanks to Dr. Corey Carroll and to Chase Woodruff for spending time with me. Also, if you want to check out what we're doing right now here in Colorado to protect communities and hold polluters accountable, you can check out healthyairandwatercolorado.com. Again, that's healthyairandwatercolorado.com. You might also be curious now about where your community stands when it comes to ozone pollution. You can find that out at epa.gov. Finally, please subscribe to this podcast and rate it so that you can help other people find us. I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.